Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. I don't know about you, but uh, I like to eat. You like to eat? We like to eat, don't we? And I don't know much about cooking. I, I don't, I'm not much of a cook at all. Uh, but I have noticed that if you take the right ingredients and mix them in the right way, you come up with something delicious. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts this morning is we're going to see some ingredients that God put together in a young man's life to make him into a man of God. And my, my thesis this morning is this. If we'll take the right ingredients and let God put them together in the right way, he will make us into a man or a woman of God. And so the title of my sermon is The Making of a Man of God. And we'll start in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word, truth with no mixture of error. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for the privilege, for the joy of corporate worship. Lord, we get to get together and sing songs of, of exaltation, to hear from your word, to respond to what you're saying. This is a, a, a joy to be here. And we ask that you would just move in our midst by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of scripture, that we might see them in such a way that we'll take them and apply them to our lives, that our lives will be transformed because we encountered the living God in the word of God today. So have your way. May your name be exalted. May the name of King Jesus be lifted up in this place. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now as we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we followed Paul and Barnabas on what scholars call the first missionary journey. They left their home church in Antioch, Syria. And they journeyed to Cyprus, then up to Asia Minor, went through some cities in Asia Minor, and then after some hardships but some victories, they returned back to their home base of Antioch, reported to the church all that God had done, and settled in for ministry there in Antioch. And then, after a time, some false teachers began to infiltrate the church at Antioch, and, and really... Uh, caused some doctrinal confusion and, and, and caused some issues in the church. And so, Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch. They go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders to settle this issue. And the issue was related to the gospel. We studied the, the, the convening of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and we saw that they came to the right conclusions about the nature of the gospel. And then they sent letters to the churches in the area to share with them the the. the the decision the council had come to and the, the conclusions the council had reached. And so Paul and Barnabas leave Jerusalem, go back to Antioch, share the decisions of the council, the conclusions of the council, and they settle in for ministry again. But after a while, Paul says to Barnabas, you know it would be a good idea 
to go to the cities we went to on our first missionary journey and check on the new believers, the new churches that were started, to see how they are doing. And Barnabas thinks it's a good idea. But as they discuss this second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas begin to disagree and even quarrel. We talked about this last week. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin John Mark along with them. But we learn in Acts 13 that on the first missionary journey, John Mark, when the going got tough, left and went back to his home. He, he didn't want to go any further on that rigorous missionary journey. And so Paul didn't want John Mark going with him on the second missionary journey. He probably said something like this. Listen, if he quit the first time, this journey is going to be just as hard, just as demanding, and we don't want to take him have any trouble, so we're not going to take John Mark with us on this missionary journey. Well, his cousin Barnabas, the encourager who saw the potential in John Mark, says, I think we should take him. Give him a second chance. I mean, God has a plan for John Mark. And they quarreled about whether or not they should take John Mark on the second missionary journey. And because emotions got involved, they did not come to a conclusion. They separated and went two different directions. Barnabas took with him John Mark, and uh, Paul took Silas and went another direction back towards Asia Minor. And we learn from that that even though they should have been able to work through the emotions and come to the right conclusions, even though they, they went different directions, God used it anyway. And instead of one missionary team, we see two missionary teams. And we see God sovereignly working even through the quarrel of Paul and Barnabas. Now, Paul needs to fill out his missionary team. Barnabas was, was going a different direction, so he chose Silas to, to take Barnabas's place. And then he needed someone to replace the role John Mark played on his missionary team. And so we see in Acts 16... That as Paul journeys through Lystra and Derby, he comes across a young man named Timothy. And he makes Timothy a part of his missionary team. And we learn some interesting things about Timothy. And as we study his life, we begin to see the ingredients that God put together to make Timothy a man of God. So I want to talk to you about the making of a man of God. And of course, uh, if you are a lady, the same principles apply to you. So you might call this the making of a woman of God. But I want to talk to you about six ingredients we see God use in Timothy's life. Number one, we see a gospel investment. A gospel investment. Look what it says there in Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now the implication is his mother was a believer because it says so. But because it did not say his father was a believer, he probably was not a believer. So he had a Jewish mom, a, a Gentile dad. His Jewish mom was a believer in Christ, a Christian. His Gentile dad was not a believer in Christ. But it says there that Timothy was a disciple in verse 1. So here's the question. How did Timothy, this young man, become a follower of Christ? How was he saved? What's his story? What's his background? Well, we get some information as we journey through the New Testament because later on in the, the formation of the early church in the first century, Paul assigns Timothy to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he writes him some letters to instruct him as to how he ought to pastor and live his Christian life. Those letters are called First and Second Timothy. So when we read those letters, we get a little bit more background into Timothy's life. So turn with me to Second Timothy. Let me show you an example of this. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Hold your place in Acts. We'll be back in Acts soon. But look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me. 
Paul makes an interesting comment starting in verse 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as I did, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul had a deep love for his protege, Timothy. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Now watch this. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now that passage gives us some insight into Timothy's background. Before Timothy became a follower of Christ... His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were followers of Christ. And the implication here is that they poured into Timothy's life. They passed down the gospel of Jesus Christ to their son. And so we see that Timothy had someone that invested in his life with the good news. And that's the first ingredient to the making of a godly person. Someone needs to invest in our lives with the gospel. Because here's the reality. If you are saved today... If you're a born-again Christian in this room, it's because someone intersected your spiritual journey, right? If you're saved, it's because someone cared enough about you to step into your life and share good news with you. Someone intersected your life, a, a gospel investment. I think about the people that intersected my life uh, to invest in my life with the good news of Jesus Christ. I remember... The story that my, uh, my dad told me about uh, their marriage before I was even born. Mom and dad were married. They ran off and eloped. They were in college together at Florida State University in Tallahassee. And, and they were unsaved and unchurched. And one day my father was out in his front yard raking leaves. And this Baptist pastor came walking down the road knocking on doors. And he stopped and began a conversation with my dad. And in my dad's front yard, he shared the good news with him. My dad got saved in the front yard. He went to the church and got baptized. My mom started going to the church. She got saved. She got baptized. So when I was born shortly thereafter, I was born into a Christian church-going family. Isn't that awesome? God did that. That's just grace. That's grace. And my parents began to take me to church and make sure I was there in church hearing the good news about Jesus Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And when I was nine years old, I began to ask my parents spiritual questions. And they talked to my pastor. And one summer afternoon, my pastor drove out to our house in his, his maroon Buick. And I'll never forget, he comes up the driveway. Preacher's here, preacher's here. And, and, and he came inside and he sat down with me at my dining room table and began to walk me through Bible verses and showed me the gospel. And I called upon the name of the Lord and I was saved. I'm so grateful for people that intersected my life with the good news, aren't you? If you're a Christian, someone intersected your life. And here's what I want you to walk away with. Now you have the great potential to impact your family and your sphere of influence with the gospel message. The same way Lois and Eunice intersected Timothy's life, God can use you to intersect your family member's life. God can use you to make an impact in your grandchildren's lives, your children's lives, your nieces, nephews, uh, friends, co-workers, classmates. God has given you the potential to step into someone's life with the good news of Jesus Christ and share that good news so that they can consider the claims of Christ and see their need for a Savior. The first ingredient in Timothy's life was a gospel investment. 
And if we're going to be men and women of God, someone's got to come to us with the gospel, right? Because the gospel is the message that saves. That's number one. The second ingredient I want you to see is that Timothy made a personal response to the gospel. A personal response to the gospel. Over in Acts 16.1 it says that he, it, Timothy was a disciple. He was a follower of Christ. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he said the faith that was first in Lois and in Eunice is now in you. It dwells in you. And Paul calls it sincere faith. It's a real, genuine faith in Christ that you have. So here's what we learn. There was a point in time in young Timothy's life He heard the gospel, he saw his need for a savior, and he placed his faith in Jesus to be his Lord and forgiver. He made a personal decision to follow Christ, a personal response to the gospel. Now here's what we learn from that. There comes a time in everyone's life when they must decide if they are going to take ownership of their faith. Every one of us, no matter our background, we've got to decide... Am I going to personally respond to the claims of Christ? Am I going to put all my trust into what Jesus did for me? Or am I going to try to make my own way in life? And everybody has to make their own decision. Christian grandparents can't make that decision for you. Christian parents can't make that decision for you. Being a part of a Christian family, listen, doesn't make you Christian. Listen to me carefully. Your mother can save you a seat in church. She can't save you a seat in heaven. You have to decide personally, am I going to respond to Christ? Ownership of faith. And so we see here the need for us to hear the gospel. But not just hear it. We've got to decide, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to to believe in Christ and call on his name and ask him to save me? Personal ownership. Listen to me. Being a Baptist does not save you. Going through a confirmation class does not save you. Being on a church membership role does not save you. Checking the box on the census that says Christian does not save you. You've got to decide that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and call on His name to, to personally come into your life and transform you and forgive you. So we've all got to take personal ownership for our faith. Franklin Graham's story is an interesting one. You know who Franklin Graham is. He leads Samaritan's Purse, the humanitarian organization that, that meets all sorts of needs all around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they meet human needs through, in physical ways as well. It's amazing ministry. They oversee and organize Operation Christmas Child, which we are a part of year after year after year. And Franklin Graham is a, is a great Christian leader of that organization. And Franklin Graham, as you probably know, is the son of Billy Graham. What a dad, right? Your dad's Billy Graham. Well, it might interest you to know that there was a time in Franklin Graham's life when he was a teenager going into his 20s where he ran from God. Matter of fact, he rebelled against God. He went his own way. The fact that he was Billy Graham's son did not mean he was a Christian. He was not taking ownership of his faith. He was running from God, traveling all around the world. And here's his neat testimony. He was 22, and he was in a hotel room in Jerusalem, and he read the Bible, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and at that moment, he was born again. He was saved. But isn't it interesting that just being the son of Billy Graham doesn't save you? Franklin Graham had to make his own decision, right? 
He could not ride his father's coattails into heaven. He had to call upon the name of the Lord himself. He had to take ownership for his faith. And that's when he was converted. And the rest is history. And so we see in Timothy's life this gospel investment through Lois and Eunice. And we see this personal response to the gospel, which leads to the third ingredient. The third ingredient is a life impacted by the word of God. Look over in 2 Timothy 3 with me. I want to show you how the word of God worked with power in young Timothy's life. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look what it says in verse 14. Now the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is Paul is talking about how evil the times were in the first century. And there are some parallels between the evil that Paul saw all around him in the first century to what we see all around us in 2016. Some, some very interesting direct parallels. But in the context of all the evil, here's what Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. We see from this that the, the word of God has the power to save. The power to save. Lois and Eunice passed down the message of the word of God, the message of the gospel to uh, Timothy. And Paul says, hey, that, that Bible that was being, was being taught to you, it brought you to a place that made you wise unto salvation to show you your need for a Savior. And so you were saved by the power of the Word of God, hearing it and responding to it, uh, responding to Christ in faith. That's how you were saved. So we see the power of the Word of God to save. But then we see the power of the Word of God to shape. Not only to save, but to shape the Christian life. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. One preacher said this, the Bible uh, tells you what's right. He says there, the Bible is profitable for teaching. The Bible tells you when you're not right, reproof. The Bible tells you how to get right, correction. And the Bible tells you how to stay right for training in righteousness. He's saying here, the Word of God not only brought you to a point of salvation, it shaped your Christian life. And look what he says in the next verse. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying, because the Word of God plays a role in your life, Timothy, you are prepared, you have been shaped, you are ready to do what God has called you to do. So listen to me. We need the Word of God to be saved, and we need the Word of God as Christians to be shaped. It ought to play a preeminent role in our lives. So think about my life. The, word, the power of the Word of God to save. When I was nine years of age, I'll never forget my pastor walking through different verses in Romans. And I'll, I'll never forget reading uh, from his Bible, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And I'll never forget at that moment, nine years of age, I'll never forget at that moment I knew I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I was so grateful to read the second part of the verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I saw that I was a sinner, but I saw that eternal life forgiveness was available if I would just call on his name. And so at my dining room table, because of the word of God's impact in my life, I prayed and called upon the name of the Lord and was saved. Isn't that awesome? The power of the word of God to save. But listen, 
the Word of God has also played a shaping role in my life. This morning, early this morning at my house, dining room table, cup of coffee, the Word of God was shaping your pastor. So reading about Joseph and, and reading about Acts and, and Herod in the early church in Acts chapter 12, and I was reading about Jesus calming the sea and, and casting out demons. It was just incredible how God was using His Word this morning, this morning, to shape me. And, and, and God wants to shape you through a, a daily interaction with the Bible. So read it. Read it every day. And let God use it to change your life. And so we see here that, that Timothy was who he was. He was a man of God because his life was so greatly impacted by the Bible. That's what Paul says here. It makes you wise for salvation and it's equipped you for every good work. But there's a fourth ingredient. The fourth ingredient is a good reputation. Turn back with me to Acts 16. I want to show you this. Acts chapter 16. Look what Paul says, or or what Luke says, I'm sorry. Luke says in Acts 16 about Timothy. It says there in verse 2 that he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. The brothers are other believers. And so the Christians in that area... Uh, spoke well of Timothy. Now, I looked at that word in the original language that's translated um, well-spoken of. And and that word's an interesting word. It means to speak well of a person on the basis of personal experience. So these believers in this area had, had spent some time around Timothy. And they could tell by personal experience that he was the real deal. That he was genuine. And because of that, they would speak well of him. Matter of fact, the, the root word that this, this phrase comes from is the word for witness, to bear witness. And so there were believers who were around Timothy. They saw that he was genuine, and they could bear witness to Timothy's reputation. They could bear witness to his life. Now listen to me. If you want to realize your spiritual potential, if you want to be ready... For all that God has for you, you need to live a life of good reputation. Because when you live a life of a good reputation, doors of opportunity will open up for you to make a greater impact for Christ. This is a big deal. You say, well, wait, how do I live a life of good reputation? Well, it's there in your notes. Look what it says. The way to build a good reputation is to live a consistent and conspicuous Christian life. In other words, every day you're walking with Jesus, and every day you're showing people the difference that Jesus Christ is making in your life. And as you do that on a day-in, day-out, I'm not talking about perfection, but but day-in, day-out, you're walking with Jesus, you're seeking His face, you're following Him. When people see that, you begin to build a good reputation. It says over in Proverbs 22.1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. In other words, if someone offers you the, the, the winning Powerball ticket, a good reputation is worth more than that. It is of great value. Great value. And so you and I need to pursue a good reputation. And here's the deal. You and I, we need God's grace, wisdom, and strength to build a good reputation. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul told Timothy, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't pastor the way you need to pastor. You can't live the way you need to live apart from God's grace and strength 
operating in your life. You're going to need some help. And if you and I are going to build a good reputation in front of a watching world, we're going to need some help, right? So every day we say, God, help me to live the way I ought to live, to build a good reputation before those that see my life. This is a great, great need. So let me ask you a question. As a follower of Christ, are you gaining a good reputation around your family members, co-workers, other believers? Do they see the difference Jesus is making in your life? Are you consistently living for Him? Is your Christianity conspicuous? There's a great need that we live out a good reputation. You know, we have some... Uh, small business owners in our church and, and managers in our church and employers in our church and, and talking to those different folks, one thing I hear constantly is how hard it is to find good workers. As a matter of fact, uh, I've, I've told some students before, I'm like, listen, when you get a job, if you'll just show up on time and work while you're there, you'll get promoted because no one else is doing that. No one else is doing that. It's hard to find folks that are reliable, folks that keep their word, folks that follow through. It's hard to find folks with a good reputation. But you know what? Christians ought to lead the way, right? Christians ought to be the best employees. They ought to be the ones there on time, working hard, being honest, keeping their word, because the Bible says whether we eat or drink, we, we do it all. Everything we do is to the glory of God. And everything we do is to be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christians ought to live before a watching world a life that is reputable because we're doing it for Jesus, right? This is a great need that we live lives of good reputation because here's the deal. Listen, when you live a life of good reputation, doors will open up opportunities for you to make much of Jesus in greater and greater ways. But there's another ingredient I want you to see. We've talked about these other things that God used in Timothy's life, but fifth, Timothy had a mentor. His name was Paul. Look what it says in Acts 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Fast forward down to verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul got to tag along, I mean Timothy got to tag along with Paul and see him sharing the gospel, making disciples. And, and Timothy was prepared by that so that he could one day pastor the church in Ephesus. Timothy was mentored by Paul. Now that word in verse 3 where it says Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, that word accompany is the Greek word soon excel thing. It means to go out with. Paul wanted Timothy with him, spending time by his side. You see, Paul taught Timothy how to walk with God by word and by example. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, Timothy, he says, you followed my conduct, my aim, my life. You, you, you followed my example as you walked around with me and learned how to walk with God. Paul taught Timothy by word. He wrote the letters, but also by his example, what it means to live for the glory of Christ. So here's the application for all of us in this room, and we say this all the time around here. Be mentored so you can be a mentor. 
Timothy was mentored by Paul, and the goal was that one day Timothy would mentor others. Over in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says to young Timothy, Hey, the things you've heard from me, things that have been entrusted to you in the presence of many witnesses, take them and, and share them with others also who can share it with others. And so we're to take what God gives us through mentors, and we're to pass it on to others. Be mentored so you can be a mentor. Let me ask you a question. Are you investing in anybody right now? Are you investing in anybody right now? Are you pouring in this? Are you teaching someone how to walk with God? And, and you say, wait, I'm not ready for that. I don't know how to invest in someone. Well, it's time for you to pray about someone that God could put in your life to invest in you. So you can get to the point where you can invest in others. Be mentored so you can be a mentor. And I could share, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of things I share about people that have mentored me and the differences made. But I believe one of the necessary ingredients in Timothy's life that made him a man of God was that, that Timothy had a mentor. Now, they use the illustration, you, you need to understand I'm, I'm not a Duke basketball fan. I don't like them at all. As a matter of fact, when they play Florida State in basketball, they beat us all the time. So I'm not a Duke basketball fan, but I can't help but admire Coach K as a basketball coach, Coach Krzyzewski. And he, here's the interesting thing about Coach K. If you, if you watch him through the years, he'll have players that play for him, and before you know it, they're in a suit and tie sitting on the bench as an assistant coach. So he gets players that, that he sees potential in, and, and they're on the bench watching him coach, watching him run a program. And before you know it, those young guys who were sitting on the bench by him watching him coach, now they're sent out to different Division I programs. They're coaching their own team, and they're doing great. You can follow the Coach K family coaching tree. It's amazing the impact these young guys are having. And it's because they were taught. They were, they were, they were shown by example how to lead a basketball program. And they were ready to go out and make a difference in their own program. And so what we see happening athletically through Coach K needs to happen spiritually in the body of Christ, doesn't it? We need mentors, and we need to grow so we can mentor others, help them to walk with Christ. But there's a final ingredient I want you to see. We've talked about a gospel investment and a personal response to the gospel and a life impacted by the Word of God and a good reputation, a mentor, but sixth and last, we see that in Timothy he had a desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads. If you want to be used by God, you need to have a desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Now notice two things here. First of all, notice the opportunity that, that, that Timothy experiences. Look what it says in verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He wanted Timothy, Timothy to go along with him on this missionary journey. What an opportunity to leave home and, and, and travel to different places in Asia Minor and, and, and be used by God to preach the gospel in many areas where people have never even heard of Christ. The door flings open wide, an opportunity. And here's what I believe. I believe that if you will consistently walk with Jesus, if you will let the word of God shape you, if you will live out a good reputation before a watching world, before you know it, God will open up a door of opportunity for greater impact. I see it happen time and time and time again in the body of Christ. And so there's an opportunity. But then I want you to notice the commitment. Look in verse 3. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews were in those places, and for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, I'm not, not going to detail here, but I want you to know that going through this procedure was commitment. Right? I mean, he's a young man, and he goes through this procedure. You say, why would Paul want Timothy to be circumcised? I mean, that was, the, that was what the Jerusalem Council was about. So why is this an issue here? Why does he want him to be circumcised. Well, I like how F.F. Bruce says it. Bruce writes, By Jewish law, Timothy was a Jew because he was the son of a Jewish mother. But because he was uncircumcised, he was technically an apostate Jew. If Paul wished to maintain his links with the synagogue, he wanted to reach Jews for Christ, he could not be seen to countenance apostasy. Timothy's circumcision was a minor surgical operation carried out for a practical purpose. His greater usefulness in the ministry of the gospel. And so Paul believed that by Timothy getting circumcised, that doors would open to preach the gospel to Jews, not be closed. If, if Paul came up to a synagogue knocking on the door, Timothy was with him, and the Jews knew that Timothy was uncircumcised, they would count him as an apostate and would never hear a word he had to say. So notice Timothy's opportunity. Notice Timothy's commitment. He does what it takes to be available To get the gospel to a lost and dying world. A desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads. You know, we sing often around here, wherever he leads, I'll go. And there's always a moment when I begin singing that song where I have to get my heart right. And I have to say, do I really mean what I'm singing? Am I really willing to follow wherever he leads? Timothy was. And God used him in mighty, mighty ways. So here's the point. We think about these, these ingredients that God put together to make Timothy a man of God. Here's the point. We all have the potential for a godly life if we will follow the process for a godly life. If you're a Christian, you have the potential for a godly life to be a godly man or a godly woman. But we've got to follow the process. Get into the Word of God. Live a good reputation. Follow Jesus wherever he leads. Have someone pouring into your life. Be a mentor yourself. If you'll do those things, live out that kind of life, God will mix all the ingredients together to make you into who he wants you to be. So we all have the potential, but we've got to follow the biblical process of growth that we see lived out in Timothy's life. But here's the big question. Do you want to be a godly person? Do you want to go to that next level in your spiritual journey? Do you want to be a man of God or a woman of God? A young lady of God or a young man of God? Do you want to be a godly person? There's an old hymn that I love. It goes like this. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to him. Hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. I don't know about you, but I don't want to linger one second longer, charmed by the world's delights. I want to run to Jesus, and I want to be a man of God. How about you? Timothy is such an example of what that can look like in our lives. So as you consider your own answer to the question, do you want to be godly? 